Thanks, Dr. Allen, for that kind introduction, and, and uh, thank you, Dr. Springer and Dr. Springer, for that lovely rendition of In Christ Alone. I really enjoy music, all kinds of music. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, lately I've been spending some time listening to the 1980s rock and roll station in my car on the radio. Uh, I was a child during that. Do you remember the 80s, Dr. Allen? I do. You remember that? I think we have a picture of Dr. Allen around uh, the 80s. There we go. <laughs> Is that your seminary photo or something? Yeah, that's the seminary photo from 1980. That's, that's not too bad, Dr. Allen. You're a pretty good-looking guy. I hope I look that good when I get that old. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, do you guys remember the 80s? Uh, there, there's one band in particular in the 80s that I enjoy listening to. I have an album of theirs. Uh, the group is The Police. Any of you familiar with The Police? Uh, some of you who are younger, maybe too young to remember the 80s, are more familiar with their lead singer, Sting, who has gone on to have a successful solo career since his time with the police. There's one song of the police that was very popular in the 80s and continues to be incredibly popular today. And there's an interesting story behind it. Let me tell you about this song. The song is called Every Breath You Take. It was released in 1983. Uh, in 1983... It was Billboard's number one song for eight straight weeks. It was Billboard's number one song of the year. It was nominated for three Grammys at the 26th Annual Grammy Awards. It won two of them, uh, Song of the Year and Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. Uh, in case you're curious, it was the, the third Grammy that it was nominated for was Record of the Year, and it was just edged out by Michael Jackson's Beat It that year. Uh, Sting, who's the lead singer of the group uh, and the composer of the song, was awarded the Ivor Novello Award by the British Academy in 1983 for the best song musically and lyrically. Uh, the, the song Every Breath You Take was selected as Song of the Year by Rolling Stone's critics and readers' polls. Uh, it was the best-selling single of 1983 and the fifth best-selling single of the entire decade. Not only was the song popular in the 80s, it actually continues to be incredibly popular today. According to a 2015 poll in the UK, the song Every Breath You Take is the greatest song from the 1980s. According to Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, greatest songs of all time, it ranks 84th. According to Billboard, it is the 25th greatest song of all time. You would be familiar with, you probably know the song I'm talking about. If you don't know it by the, the name, you would recognize it when you hear it. Can we play just a, a little bit from it, please? All right, you recognize this, right? Actually, Dr. Allen's agreed to sing it for us this morning. Well, the, there are souls at stake here, Dr. Allen. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Incredibly popular song. You've probably all heard it several times. What's interesting about this song is that it's wild success, it's great popularity in the 80s and even to this day is based largely on a misunderstanding. It is a catchy tune, has catchy lyrics, but the reason that people enjoy the song is because most people misunderstand the song. Most people think that the song Every Breath You Take is a song sung by a man who loves a woman and sung to a woman who loves him back. 
But the song Every Breath You Take is actually about unrequited love. It is sung by a song, or the, the, the speaker in the song, the person uh, speaking the lyrics, is someone who's watching someone else, and this person doesn't want to be watched. This person doesn't love him back. Let me read the, the lyrics to you. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Every single day, every word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. Oh, can't you see? You belong to me. My poor heart aches with every step you take, every move you make, every vow you break, every smile you fake, every claim you stake. Nice rhyming. I'll be watching you. That's a little creepy, isn't it? the song Every Breath You Take has a completely different meaning depending on the perspective of the person that the singer is speaking to in the song. Has a completely different meaning. Whether this is a heartwarming, comforting song that gives you these warm, fuzzy feelings, or a song that's troubling or even frightening, depends on how the person being watched responds. Today what I want to talk with you about, the passage I want to talk with you about is Psalm 139. And very similar to every breath you take, it's a psalm that takes on a completely different significance depending on the perspective of the person being watched in the psalm. And here's the main point of the sermon. Uh, if you check out after this point, I, I guess that's okay. But here's the main point of the sermon. Uh, the main point is God knows absolutely everything that there is to know about us. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether that's a comforting thing or a frightening thing, depends on our response to him. God knows absolutely everything that there is to know about us, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, depends on our response to him. Let's start off at the beginning of the psalm. Actually, Psalm 139, it divides neatly into four different sections. There are 24 verses in the psalm, and it divides into four sections of six verses each. The first three sections of the psalm all deal with God's knowledge, the comprehensiveness, the totality, the completeness uh, with which God knows us. Uh, the first three sections deal with God's knowledge. The last section, the final six verses of the song, address what should be the human response to God's knowledge of us. So let's start off with the first section uh, pertaining to God's knowledge here in verse one through, uh, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows everything that we do and even everything that we think. There's a literary device here in the psalm that uh, we even use today in, in English, but, but it's a rhetorical device called merism at the beginning of the psalm, where, where uh, a merism is when a speaker or writer uh, 
names two opposite things, and by naming two opposite things, what he intends to communicate is the totality of something or the completeness of something. Uh, it would be like when, when I, I've lost my cell phone and I'm searching for it and I tell my wife I can't find my cell phone. Uh, I've searched high and I've searched low. Now, that doesn't mean that I've just looked up on the highest shelves of our furniture than, and that I've looked underneath the couch or something like that. That means that I've looked everywhere. I've searched high and I've searched low and I've searched everywhere in between. And the psalmist does this several times in Psalm 139. He employs the rhetorical device merism. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Whatever I do, you know. Uh, verse 3, you search out my path when I'm out traveling, and you, you know me when I lie down, when I'm lying down, and everything in between. This. God knows everything about the psalmist. God know, even knows what the psalmist thinks. The, the psalmist says, when I have words in my heart, but I haven't even spoken them, God knows what they are. So God knows everything that we do and everything even that we think. Second section of the psalm uh, begins in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free from your, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God's knowledge encompasses the extremities of all three spatial dimensions. Anywhere that we might travel, anywhere that we might go, God knows about that. God would know us no matter where we were to go. Uh, God knows that up, down, north, south, east, west. God is there and knows what happens there and knows what we do as we travel. Light and darkness aren't factors. We can't turn off the lights and, and it be dark and God not see what is going on. Light and darkness are not factors for God as they are with humans. Now, as humans, we're able to hide the truth from each other, aren't we? We can hide the truth from, from uh, others pretty easily. One of the things I've found is challenging about being a father of two young boys is uh, disciplining, disciplining, disciplining them appropriately when I don't know exactly what has happened. Uh, my kids will get into a fight and they'll come to me, one of them's crying or both of them is crying and one of them says the other one hurt him and the other one says, no, he hurt me and the other one says, he started it, no, he started it or he did this and the other one says, no, I didn't do anything and I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. They were in another room and I didn't see what happened and as a father, it's my job to discipline them, to, to correct that behavior and encourage them to behave appropriately. Uh, and it's my job to be just in how I do that. But if I don't know exactly what happened, if I wasn't a witness to it, then how can I do that? And I'm left to my own devices. I'm left to take into account what they've both said and then take what I know about them generally and, and to guess the best that I can to raise them to be the godly young men I want them, I want them to be. Uh, God doesn't have that same limitation. God isn't limited uh, in his knowledge, and therefore he is able to be perfectly just in a way that we aren't. So not only are things hidden from me that are not hidden from God, but I'm able to hide things from other people uh, that I can't hide from God. I'm able to act uh, in ways in one place, and people in another place would not know about it. I can say things in a conversation with one set of friends, 
and another set of friends never know that I said those things. They could be horrible things, and other friends wouldn't, wouldn't know about that. I can hide how I behave from other people, but not from God. One thing that I'm really good at is hiding my thoughts from other people. I know how to appear to be saying and doing all the right things, but in my heart I can be thinking horrible things. Now, some of you right now are saying, you don't know how to pretend to do the right things <laughs> or say the right things. Uh, but in general, I know how to say the right things and do the right things. Uh, but in my heart, I may not be thinking the right things necessarily. As a matter of fact, at this very moment, you have no idea what I'm thinking. I could be thinking, man, I really hope they like this sermon. Or Dr. Allen's here listening to me. Dr. Allen's one of my favorite preachers, by the way. I say that, but you don't know that I'm actually thinking that. Uh, but but, but, but in, in honesty, he is one of my very favorite preachers. And, and, uh, and I could be thinking, I hope that Dr. Allen likes this sermon. I really want to impress him. Or am I thinking, I really hope that I communicate God's word accurately and clearly. You don't know what I'm thinking. I can hide that from you. You have no idea what evil thoughts are going on in my head. Now, my wife knows. Uh, she lives with me. <laughs> Sometimes these thoughts seep out into my actions and words. But in general, I can hide them from others. But I have evil inside me that no one is aware of uh, but God. Sometimes, now th this is the most insidious form of hiding that we can do as humans. Sometimes we can hide the ugly truth about ourselves from ourselves, can't we? We can trick ourselves, even ourselves, into thinking that we're righteous, that we're doing the right things, right. when actually we're, we're not. I think about the Pharisees sometimes. In my, my scholarship studying early Judaism and studying biblical literature, I think a lot about the Pharisees. And, and Jesus had some really challenging criticisms for the Pharisees, didn't he? I was reading in, in the Gospel of Matthew this morning and some of the things that Jesus said to them. And uh, very challenging things. The Pharisees were hypocrites, he called them. He called them a brood of vipers. He said that they, they washed the outside of their cups, but their inside was full of death and corruption and all sorts of evil. Here's the thing about the Pharisees, the thing that scares me. I doubt that any of them, certainly not many of them, woke up in the morning and said, you know, I think today I'm going to be a hypocrite. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to clean the outside of my cup, but I'm going to leave the inside of it filthy. I'm going to be a whitewashed tomb today. And the Pharisee's wife says to him, you know what? While you're doing that, why don't you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? That would be great as a teacher of the law for you to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Neglect the weightier things of the law and, and pay attention to, to the more, the relatively minor things. There's probably no Pharisee who ever thought that and made that conscious decision to do that. The Pharisees in all likelihood, I don't know any of them personally, uh, maybe you do, but, but I don't know any of them personally, but my guess is that they probably thought that they were doing what is right. They thought that they were righteous, but they had deceived themselves. And that's frightening because we can deceive ourselves sometimes, but we can't deceive God. We can't hide anything about ourselves from God. God knows everything we do or even think. We cannot hide anything about ourselves from God. Section 3, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is some of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God, as our maker, as our creator, the one who designed us and formed us, is intimately acquainted with us from the beginning of our lives to the end of our lives. Now, when I come across this passage, normally it is in the context of someone making an argument uh, from a pro-life position uh, against abortion, arguing that life starts at conception. And I think it's appropriate uh, to, to use this passage in such conversations, and others like it in the Bible. There are several passages that are a part of that conversation, and this is certainly one of them. But I want to keep us on track to what this passage is, is dealing with more directly here, uh, which is not about when life begins, but that God is there and involved when our life begins. And that because God is there and involved with us as our life begins. He has a comprehensive knowledge of us that begins at the beginning of our life and is complete all the way to the end of our life. Uh, in the previous passage, we looked at how uh, it dealt with how God's knowledge is not limited spatially. You can't go too high or too low or too far east, west, north, or south uh, where you go beyond God's knowledge. In this passage, it says God's knowledge is not limited Temporally, it extends not only everywhere we go, but every when we go. God is every place we go, and he is every time we go. So there is nothing in our lifetimes that we can possibly do that would be outside of God's ability to know. God knows everything about us. We can't hide from God. God knows us from beginning to end. Uh, now let's talk about our response, beginning in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is a challenging passage. I remember when, uh, when I was a college student, I was just beginning to read the Bible and really pay attention to it with a careful eye for the first time. And I read Psalm 139, and I was so moved by, by the first three sections of Psalm 139. Then I get to this part, and wow, David just took a left turn there. Or, or he, he really, uh, uh, there's a twist that, that would rival any M. Night Shyamalan movie uh, there. It's, uh, I didn't see that. I had a student ask me one time if, uh, if David had a chemical imbalance, uh, that he would go from one extreme uh, to the other like this. This is a challenging passage, and, and if you find it challenging, you're not the first person to find it challenging, nor, nor, nor was I. Uh, I was actually, uh, I had the privilege of, of spending some time in Cambridge, Cambridge, England this past fall. I was there with, with Dr. Wilder and, and some folks from other institutions, and and one day, the, the other people we were with decided that they would like to visit the chapel of King's College there at the University of Cambridge. And, uh, and so we were able to attend a chapel service there. You see the building. It's a beautiful building. If you've been, been you've, you've seen it personally. 
some of you probably recognize this not as the chapel of King's College of Cambridge, but as Hogwarts Dining Hall, because this is where the, the, the scenes in the dining hall and the Harry Potter movies were filmed. Uh, actually, I've told my kids that I went to Harry Potter's church when I was in England, <laughs> but that's not entirely accurate, so I probably shouldn't. Probably, and you wonder why they misbehave, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, we're there. It, it was an Anglican chapel service, uh, and in the Anglican tradition, they have a lectionary, and they read from scriptures similar to the way we do here uh, every time they meet. And the reading for that particular service was from Psalm 139. Uh, which is a wonderful psalm. I loved it, and I was looking forward to it and, and enjoyed the reading of it. Interestingly, when they got to verse, uh, verses 19 through 24, they left those verses out. They read all of the stuff that makes, makes us feel good about God knowing us, but then they come to the part about hating God's enemies and God judging the wicked, and, and all of a sudden that was difficult to deal with. So whoever compiled that lectionary decided that it was probably better just to leave that section out than to you know, allow the church to read it on Sunday. It's a difficult passage. But once you understand what this psalm is really about, it's not necessarily a comforting song that God knows things about us. It's, it's a song, a psalm, the significance of which depends on our response to him. And then you can begin to understand why it is that the psalmist here makes such declarations about God's enemies. Because the psalmist recognizes here that God's complete knowledge of us demands our complete loyalty to him. God's complete knowledge of us demands our complete loyalty to him. The psalmist here does use language of hate, which is, is challenging because we think of God as a loving God, and, and correctly so, God is love. It says in, in, in 1 John. And it can be challenging to think of God as a God who hates or God who condones hatred. And, and let me just clarify a couple of things about this passage, about the nature of the hatred in this passage when the psalmist says he hates those who hate God. This is probably not hatred the way we typically think of hatred. This is not... The point here doesn't seem to be that the psalmist feels any emotion or a sentiment of dislike for these people. It's not about that emotional, visceral hatred that we typically think of when we use the word hatred in English. Even less is this part of the psalm about the psalmist intending to harm in any way his enemies. I mean, he very explicitly leaves that to God. He asks God to take care of them. He's not dealing with that himself. What this is about when the psalmist says that he hates his enemies, it is about the psalmist choosing teams. You can be on God's side or you can be on the side of God's enemies. And since God knows everything that the psalmist does, it's important that the psalmist chooses to be on God's side rather than on the side of those who are hostile to God. This is kind of like what Jesus says when he says, you can't have two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. Uh, the same thing, uh, or very similar to when he says, you have to hate your parents if you want to follow me. He's not saying, I want you to dislike your parents. But what he says is, your ultimate loyalty needs to lie with me and not with someone else. And if push comes to shove, and push does come to shove when it comes to loyalties, 
you need to choose to follow God and to live the way God wants you to rather than the way that others would have you live uh, when, they're, when they're, their desires are actually opposed to God's desires. And the psalmist here, I think, makes it as clear as he possibly can to God. He's speaking to God here. And he makes it as clear as possible that he's on God's team and not on the team of God's enemies. Relating this back to God's knowledge uh, briefly, I'm reminded of the election in November. I don't know if you guys are aware. Uh, we, we had an election in November where we chose a president in this country, and, and uh, I, that hasn't been covered in the media uh, extensively, so, so you, you may not be familiar with that. But uh, we did have an election, and how many of you are watching the polls results uh, on the, th the Tuesday night of the election? Now, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you were excited about how the election turned out or whether you were appalled at how it turned out or whether you're somewhere in the middle like a lot of Americans, I think, that was fascinating uh, to, to see how all of that was, was shaking out and taking place. And, and it was a surprise result for the election. The, the pollsters were predicting that it would be a, a fairly comfortable win for Hillary Clinton when, in fact, Donald Trump is our president now. Uh, one of the reasons that the pollsters were wrong, they speculated why they got it so wrong in the days leading up to the election. And one of the reasons that they speculate that they were wrong is that when they would call people and poll them and say, are you voting for Clinton or Trump? A number of people were embarrassed that they were voting for Trump. And so they lied and said they were voting for Clinton. And so the polls were wrong to begin with because people were dishonest. Apparently, the, when, when folks were polled by computers, uh, Trump did a little better when, when a computer, you know, someone was willing to lie to a computer, I guess, but not to a real person. Um, people could lie about their loyalties, couldn't they? They could deceive the pollsters about where their loyalties were politically. We can't deceive God with regard to where our loyalties are. Um, he knows. He knows where they are. So how should we respond? We should be loyal to God. But what about that other point I raised earlier about how we can deceive ourselves? What if, we're, what if we think we're loyal to God, but we're really not? What if we fooled ourselves into thinking that, that our loyalty is with God when actually we're more, loyalty to, more loyal to God's enemies or to ourselves? And that's what the psalmist addresses in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is our check against self-deception. We need to pray that God, by his grace, will search us and expose our disloyalties, will expose the evils that are hidden not only from others, but even from ourselves, then lead us to correct those. Lead us to walk with him. I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. Uh, by the way, if you're uh, preaching students, do not imitate the way that I preach uh, because I'm not big on conclusions. So this is going to be very brief, but I'm going to wrap it up right now. I began the sermon by comparing Psalm 139 with every breath you take a song which has a completely different meaning depending on the perspective of the person being watched. 
If you're loyal to that person, it's great. If you're not loyal to that person, it's frightening. Let me remind you of another song, a children's song that we sing between Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. You like that merism there? See, we do merisms today as well. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Therefore, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Jesus is coming to town. And <laughs> I almost, that's really cheesy, okay, <laughs> that I just said that. I, I almost left that out, but I said, why not? Why not have a little cheese up here? I, <laughs> but God knows everything about us, and he is coming to town with things much better than Christmas presents and things much worse than lumps of coal. Is God's knowledge of us good news or bad news? Is Psalm 139 supposed to reassure us or is it supposed to frighten us? And I think it depends partly on our perspective. If we're not living the way God wants us to live, it should frighten us, shouldn't it? You know, even if we are walking with God as the psalmist seems to be, I'm not sure that that means we can simply relax because the psalmist doesn't simply relax. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm good. He says, God, search me. Know me. Show me what's wrong with me and help me to do, to do better. Help me to live in a way that pleases you. We need God to search us and uncover any sins, sins that we've hidden even from ourselves and to lead us in the everlasting way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for everyone who's here, the faculty members and administrators, students, family members. God, I thank you uh, that I'm surrounded by Christians right now in a seminary setting and, and people who are walking with God, people who are walking with you. God, if there's a student here who has a sin in his life that he's aware of and, and maybe no one else knows about it uh, except for him and, and you, I pray that, that you would um, bring him back to you or bring her back to you. God, if uh, the rest of the students here who... Uh, who are walking with you and aren't aware of sins, God, I pray that you would help them to see those sins that, that they aren't even, that even they aren't aware of and, and, and that you would do that for all of us, God, that you would show us how to walk with you better. And God, if there's someone here who, who perhaps isn't walking with you at all and, and knows that, that he or she's not walking with you, I pray that you would uh, bring that person to a knowledge of you and what you did for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and bring them to repentance so that they will walk with you so that your knowledge of them and Jesus' arrival in the future will be a good thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.